I'm Brittany Hardin-Tangway, a manager with KPMG, and I am fascinated by the practice of transfer pricing and its impact on the global market. Join me each episode as I explore the transfer pricing world with specialists who will explain the ins and outs of this niche practice where tax meets economics. We have established a solid foundation, and it's time to continue building up and constructing this industry series house that we have on exploring transfer pricing, where we are looking at transfer pricing in different industries. And what better place to continue building than in building development and real estate? So I'm happy to have back with me Sharon Liu, a principal in Chicago and our economic valuation services industry leader for real estate. Hi, Brittany. I'm so happy to be here again. And we also have Weston Kreider, a transfer pricing managing director in Los Angeles with a focus on asset management. Thanks for having me, Brittany. Really appreciate the time to talk to you with Sharon as well. We have previously discussed asset management in the context of financial services. And one of the first things we did on that episode was to clearly distinguish the fact that we were talking about financial assets and not actual physical assets. While I understand they're related, what we're talking about here today is the management of physical assets, et cetera. Weston, you run in both circles. So how do you distinguish the difference? First, how do we define the building construction real estate or BCRE real estate? We define that as companies that are operating in the real estate space. And that can be your operating companies that own and operate properties. And then you have this group of service providers that will provide services to the real estate industry. We also define it as companies that operate in engineering and construction as well as travel, leisure, and hospitality. So from an operating company perspective, that's how we draw the parameters. Asset management overlays all of that to some degree. Asset managers help provide one of the key necessary components of the industry, which is funding. So the financial asset management is integrated into the physical asset management because of the requirement of so much capital to be able to build and construct and engineer. And we did talk a little bit in a previous episode about REITs, which are real estate investment trusts, which Sharon, you provided your brilliance on, and that's underneath this umbrella as well. Exactly. I think under the asset management umbrella, if we're focusing on real estate, the capital is sourced from a variety of places, whether it's funds, individuals, sovereign wealth managers. But the REITs provide a form of potentially more efficient investment from a tax perspective for different investor classes. So the REIT regulations, which we covered in the prior episode, came out of a desire to create opportunities for more folks to be able to participate in the real estate industry without being a party to a more traditional or larger investor platform. When you think of engineering and construction, I don't think you automatically make the jump to travel, leisure, and hospitality. But in fact, they are related because we're dealing with physical building structures that have to be managed and established. What are the underlying assets to all these different companies, what they own? Of course, you have service providers in here, but all these different types of companies do something a little bit different, and they all have a little bit of a different economic profile. Because it's so broad, it feels a little bit segmented. And that is true to some degree. And personally, I love that because it offers up a lot of different perspectives. You get a very wide variety of TP issues that come up. And that's driven in large part because you get a wide variety of underlying assets and different ways that we need to think about economic challenges that are presented to the industry. I've never really thought about it this way, but in reflecting on an answer to your question, Brittany, 
I guess you could think of it as, in typical transfer pricing speak, it's a value chain in physical assets. When we think of the types of organizations that we're typically working with in this industry, if you just have a piece of land, what typically happens with that land? Somebody's going to own it. Somebody might choose to develop it. And therefore, you get the engineering construction. You could pull in the real estate fund or the REIT investors at that point, depending on if there's a larger group of entities that wants to invest. And then let's say they decide they want to develop a hotel or a resort. Then that pulls in the travel, leisure, and hospitality. It's the whole supply chain for how you get a property or physical asset either into operation or once it's into operation, how are you going to maximize its productivity? Because it's so broad, you've got all these different players and therefore almost like subsectors essentially develop within it, which makes it unique relative to other industries because different aspects of either investing or actually developing and owning are very specialized. You find these subsectors that jump up from within the industry more broadly. That was perfect, Sharon. And what's some of the things that make that unique? And are there more similarities than differences when it comes to transfer pricing across these groups? the various underlying assets that may be very unique in and of themselves and the way we have to approach them is unique but there's also uniqueness in that a lot of this especially from an asset management angle a lot of it's domestic because of those two different things we have to be unique in how we analyze them from a transfer pricing perspective i'll talk a little bit about solar panels the ownership or let's say leasing of property on which solar panels sit There are specific tax incentives that crop up around the use of renewable energy, in particular solar panels. So there are tax incentives that go along with that. And we've had projects where we've had to transfer price the use of solar panels, and it's complex. We're subject matter experts, but we work closely with people who are even more specialized than us because it is so specialized. That's challenging because it plays on the edge of both transfer pricing principles as well as other aspects of tax and valuations. And ESG, environmental social governance. It's not like we have something off the shelf or a playbook for how to do that analysis, but as a function of tax reform, the demand for that type of analysis all of a sudden just came upon us in this industry group that was very interested in capturing the value of those incentives. That is the cool part of this industry. There's a lot of this stuff where you're not really sure. It's not like an analysis that you might see on a more regular basis in other areas of transfer pricing. It really requires you to figure out the approach that we're going to take to come up with a defensible analysis for clients. It keeps you fresh. You have to rely on those economic principles. You can't rely on heuristics. You're really having to challenge and think about each transaction in its own unique settings. Yes, exactly. What are some other interesting examples? Maybe something where we can really dig into transfer pricing, a unique method or something along those lines. One of the things that jumps out to me is just how heavily we have to rely on making the connection between what our real estate valuation group does and what we do in the transfer pricing. And there's really a meshing of the two different methodologies. So we heavily rely on their direct valuation method, but also overlaid with transfer pricing principles to make sure that the price that they're paying or those lease charges aren't done in a vacuum, that the profits are being earned where they should be. For me, there's a uniqueness to the underlying asset that presents challenges around how it's valued. And then how do we determine that a related party service provider is also getting a cut or the owner is getting the right cut of the profit. 
So the challenges really do directly relate to those unique and varying types of assets that are being bought and sold and leased and services provided to the companies that are owning them in the real estate space. In a transfer pricing context, if we think about the typical transfer pricing methods that we apply, because we're talking about real estate, there is an ample market of data just due to the industry on direct price comparisons for a lot of property types. So for us, transfer pricing practitioners, that's often seen as a cop or comparable on control price. So I do find relative to other industries, we are, if not either on a primary basis, but on a corroborative basis, often able to use or apply the cup method just by virtue of being able to access some pretty prevalent real estate specific industry data, often on whether it's rent per square foot or some other basis, the type of property we're looking at. That, again, does make it unique because I would say, although I've been in this field for over 20 years, still the prevalence of the ability to really feel comfortable applying a cup is far and few between. This reminds me, a few years ago, I challenged our property taxes because they had jumped up a significant amount. And I was working with an attorney that specializes on this. I was fascinated because what she was talking about doing, it's exactly what we do. It's just cups for values of homes. I felt very akin to her because it's exactly what you're saying, Sharon. There's this prevalence like, oh, gosh, well, if you have the data, then let's make the most of it. Let's use it. And I think that's a key point, too. It's what makes real estate unique. Because of all that data, we do use different databases, whether you're talking about shareholder loans or whether you're talking about transfer pricing related specific services or even leasing a property. It's just different level of data. It's what's distinguishing about it because it's hard to ignore a building. Someone's going to know what that cost and how much it's valued and what the land is. Whereas most intangible agreements that if they choose to be shared, it can be more difficult to get that data. One of the other fairly common transactions that we will look at, particularly in a REIT context, is for office properties. There can be amenities like a fitness center, a cafeteria, or even a daycare that require separate transfer pricing as a result of the REIT rules. And so there's an intercompany service arrangement that essentially needs to be priced involving what the appropriate transaction amount or compensation to that amenity function is. So that's interesting because economically, what we generally understand about office properties is that as an office building owner, you might provide those amenities as a way to attract tenants to your building. And those amenities won't necessarily earn anything if you were to look at them on a standalone basis. But in theory, the value, your return as an owner to the office building will include trying to capture some return for those amenities. So the rent that you actually charge your tenants for the office space will include a return for those amenities. Nevertheless, because the exercise is to price those amenities on a standalone basis, you have to keep this perspective about looking at the projections and understanding standalone versus it being an economic component of a whole and earning portfolio return. That makes for interesting dynamics and thinking through how you ultimately solve for the correct transfer pricing. The decision by a corporate buyer to lease tenant space for their office and their employees. That's nice to have, but even though it may be the same exercise equipment that you would get at average Joe's gym, that marginal cost is different. So you can't really compare the two, even though it's the same equipment. It's just the economic factors of where the value is being provided and who the buyer is and that decision-making process that plays into all of it. Yeah, exactly. 
I think one of the more important things that comes up these days in the real estate space are shareholder loans. It's very important to shareholders, people that are limited partners that are contributing capital that are ultimately being used to buy these portfolios of properties. So in today's environment where rates are higher than they've been in the last five or six years, despite how much rates have gone up, there's still a lot of movement. It's become more expensive to do them, but deals are still getting done. And because of that, we're still helping price shareholder loans. Certainly very common transaction and also completely agree with the characterization from our client's perspective, often very front and center for them because it impacts the return that they've pitched to their investors. The underlying data that we use to benchmark those loan transactions, whether it be the leverage and the interest rate, we have unique real estate specific data that we rely on when we're pricing shareholder loans for the real estate industry that is distinct and separate from shareholder loans in other spaces. So it's another differentiating factor as far as the analyses performed and puts us squarely back in the space of traditional transfer pricing, which is get as close comparability as you can. Another little connection point with financial services. Something that I'm really learning from all of this is the fact that the connection points are endless, even though there are very distinguishing challenges and factors within this industry. It's certainly connected to all of the others. The industry is dealing with a lot of the same pressures around labor markets. If I think about commercial real estate, even the challenges we have, do we come into the office full-time? Do we not come into the office? Do we come in part-time? All of that has reverberations in that commercial real estate industry, and that's a big part of what real estate is. The hospitality industry may be inordinately impacted by COVID. These are things that have impacted the industry and what we even do, the types of issues that we see on a day-to-day basis. So there are specific things that are happening around labor markets that are working their way into real estate and influencing transfer pricing issues. I think that's really interesting and continues to evolve. And we talk about even technology, replacing some of the workforce with technology. These are big issues that everybody's dealing with, but they find their way into real estate in very unique ways. And with supply chain issues, try building a skyscraper during 2020 and then who's going to work in it after? Emphasizing those connection points. Again, it's like the rebar of this industry is really the foundation across the economic landscape. (laughs) That's right. I can look out my window here of the KPMG tower and I can see four skyscrapers in downtown LA that have been sitting partially constructed for the last three years. They've just ground to a halt. And that's a microcosm of what's going on in the broader industry couldn't have said it better. We've already mentioned why we enjoy working in this industry, but in light of the pandemic, which obviously had many implications across several industries, but when you practice in real estate, it's been at the front and center of many of the property types that we work with and therefore the clients that are investing in these property types. It really keeps you at the forefront of where are we headed economically, which I think is very exciting. This is awesome. Thank you so much for building this with me. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Thank you. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining me on this adventure in transfer pricing. See you next time. And special thanks to Seth Salinger from the Minneapolis office with KPMG US who helped make this episode possible.